I'm from the future. I'm an actor. I'm Forrest, Forrest Gump. I'm your friend. I'm home. I'm an excellent driver. I'm Spartacus! I'm Spartacus. I'm the dude. I'm not your bro. I'm Batman. I'm Batman. I am Iron Man. I am Groove. Just a cook. I'm a bird. I'm in love with her. I'm your Uncle Buck. I'm glad that you. I'm Batman! I'm in the dark! I'm right here! I'm in a glass case of emotion! I'm your future. I'm your secret. I'm done! I'm finished. So who are you? Are you an actor? Are you a businessman? Are you Batman? Are you in a glass case of emotion? This question of identity and who we are is one that we've actually been kind of talking about as we've been going throughout the series in Daniel, this series called Life in Babylon, because of the fact that in every place... There's always a prevailing culture. There's always kind of a dominant culture, and then there are subcultures, which are kind of reactions to that dominant culture. And the question everybody always has to ask themselves is, where am I in relation to this prevailing culture? And the reason we ask that question is because of the fact that prevailing culture has a powerful influence on our lives and how we think about who we are. It has a way of shaping uh, what we desire, what we value, how we live our lives, how we even think about ourselves and our self-worth. And so we've been talking a little bit about how in Scripture, one of the things that God tells us, though, is that our identity is not to be determined by the culture that we live in. The rather our identity is a gift that he gives, and our purpose in this world is to look at the culture that we live in and to ask ourselves, how might I bring a redemptive influence in the society in which I find myself? How might I bring a redemptive influence to a culture whose values are radically different from my own? That's really what we've been talking about as we've been going throughout this series. It's the question that we've been wrestling with. And this morning, as we come to the end of this series, and we look at one more chapter in Daniel, we're going to see that there's one other thing in our culture that tends to blind us to who we really are and that can prevent us from actually having that redemptive influence. But we'll also see that God is a God who brings sight to those who are blind. But before we dive into our story, I think it's only right that we allow God to prepare our hearts and our minds to receive the message he has for us this morning. So will you please bow your heads and pray with me? Let's pray together. Lord God, we give you thanks that you have indeed brought us to this place in order to meet with us. That long before we had a sermon series, long before we planned the hymns, you, Holy Spirit, were carving out this time to meet with your people. We thank you so much that your presence is here now. We pray that you would indeed give us eyes to see, ears to hear, open hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us this morning. And Lord, I pray that the words of my lips and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O God, who is indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We are going to be taking a look at Daniel chapter 4, a portion of which was just read a few moments ago. But if you have your Bibles, I want to encourage you to open them up to Daniel chapter 4 with me. And if you're using the Pew Bible, you'll find that story on page 740. Okay, it's on page 740. And the reason I want you to look at Daniel chapter 4 is because it's actually a long chapter that has a lot of detail. And we're going to be looking at some of those details together, but but I want to make sure that we've got it in front of us so that we can really go deep, that we can dive deep and understand how this story applies to today. 
One of the things that we should notice the moment we open up Daniel chapter 4 is that it begins in a very surprising way. It begins with these words. It says, King Nebuchadnezzar to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. Now, the reason that that should surprise us is because of what we've seen in the book of Daniel up to this point about Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who's writing here. He's praising God most high, but up until this point, all that we've known about Nebuchadnezzar is that really he's a tyrant. He's the king of Babylon, one of the most mighty empires of his day. And what we saw all the way back in Daniel chapter 1 is that Babylon had come in war against Daniel's country of Judah. That Nebuchadnezzar had laid siege to their capital city of Jerusalem and had carried many of their nobility off into slavery and exile. And many scholars believe that between Daniel chapter 1 and Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar had actually gone back to Judah, and this time he had destroyed Jerusalem completely. He had crushed it flat. He had ripped down the temple. This is not a nice guy. Furthermore, what we know about his religion up until this point is that he's a pagan, that he worships the, the deities of the, ba- of the Babylonians. And anytime he's referenced Daniel's God, God Most High, it's usually been in reference to Daniel or his friends. He said, well, he's God Most High. He's the God of Daniel. He's the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But here now, we find this pagan tyrant, this pagan tyrant king of Babylon, is actually giving praise to the Lord. He's worshiping the one God. And he's telling all the nations about this God and about his many wonderful signs. And we have to ask ourselves, what happened in Nebuchadnezzar's life? What caused this change? And the answer is, is that God has given Nebuchadnezzar a dream. See, God has been trying to reach Nebuchadnezzar. All the way back in Daniel chapter 2, he gave Nebuchadnezzar a dream, a dream that was supposed to humble Nebuchadnezzar, but Nebuchadnezzar never really got the message. And, And here, once more, we get yet another dream that Nebuchadnezzar now asks Daniel to interpret. And this is what he dreams. This is uh, from uh, Daniel chapter 4, starting in verse 11. It says that he saw an image. In, in his dream, he saw a vision of a great tree. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field." Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's. And let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. 
Nebuchadnezzar's dream that God gives him is a dream of a tree that reaches into the heavens and whose branches extend to the very ends of the earth. And in order to understand this dream, we have to look at how Daniel interprets it, but we also need to understand a little something about ancient Mesopotamian religion. See, in that time period, the kings of Assyria and Babylon believed in this idea of the world tree. It's this idea that that the world was supported, that its foundations were supported by a great tree, a tree whose roots reached all the way down into the underworld and whose branches extended to heaven, the tree which covered all of the earth. It was the thing that represented the divine cosmic order. It was that which held the universe together. But many uh, ancient Near Eastern peoples believed that the monarchy, that the king who sat on the throne was a representation of this cosmic order. That the monarchy, that the tree kind of pointed to the monarchy and the monarchy pointed to the tree. It highlighted that when the king is on his throne, he is the one who holds everything together. It's under the shade of his branches that all people find refuge and are fed and are blessed. And the reason that's important for us to know is because it points to Nebuchadnezzar's problem. You see, Nebuchadnezzar has a Messiah complex. He believes he's the tree. He believes he's the one that holds all the created order together. He looks out on his empire, his empire that stretches across nations, and he says, I have built this. And all the nations and all the people and all the beasts of the field and the birds of the air, they live under my protection and under my good pleasure. See, Nebuchadnezzar has been blinded by something. He's been blinded by his success. He believes that he is the savior of the world. But that's not all that we see in this dream because as we noted A divine one, a watcher, is sent down from heaven, and this one cuts down the tree. And this causes Nebuchadnezzar to be a little bit disturbed, so he calls for Daniel. He calls for his most trusted advisor. Daniel has been able to interpret dreams for the king before, and so he brings Daniel, and he tells him his dream. And he says, now tell me what this dream means. But notice how Daniel at first reacts. It says, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for, his, for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. But the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or its interpretation alarm you. But Belteshazzar answered and said, my lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. See, Daniel, upon hearing this dream, this dream of a great tree which is cut down in judgment, suddenly is afraid. But did you notice who he's afraid for? Daniel's afraid for Nebuchadnezzar. And this is shocking but important to note because remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the one who carried Daniel off into slavery. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who waged war against Daniel's homeland. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who destroyed the temple that Daniel would have worshipped in. And yet something has changed in Daniel's life. He's come to actually love Nebuchadnezzar. And in his many, many years of serving this king, this king with all of his flaws, Daniel's heart has actually grown for the king. To a point when he hears the dream and realizes that this is about judgment, which is supposed to come upon the king, Daniel doesn't rejoice. He doesn't celebrate. Rather, he pleads. He says, I, I pray, I pray that this would never happen to you. 
I would rather see your enemies punished in this way than you. And this is important for us to know because one of the things we've been saying throughout this series in Daniel is that we are called to have a redemptive influence on the society and on the culture in which we find ourselves. And noting Daniel's reaction is, imp- is an important lesson for us. Because oftentimes I think that, that Christians, you know, people who find themselves in the American Christian subculture, when it comes to the broader culture or it comes to the people in that culture who have different values than we do, we tend to kind of either um, turn our backs on them or shout out in judgment against them in condemnation. We tend to look at our culture with its changing values and we tend to say, see, that is what is wrong with the world. This culture and this society, it's going to hell in a handbasket, but good riddance, at least I'm not on that train. Or we say, hey, they can keep going their own way as long as they leave us alone. We can just stay over here and do our thing. But that is not Daniel's posture, not at all. Daniel's fallen in love with the king. He actually cares about Babylon. And he hopes and he prays that this judgment that he sees in this dream would not fall upon the man that he's now come to consider a friend. So much so that after Daniel gives the interpretation and tells Nebuchadnezzar that you're the tree and this judgment is for you, he ends with these words pleading, Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there might be a lengthening of your prosperity. Daniel wants what's best for Nebuchadnezzar and he wants him to be rescued. Rescued from the consequences of the path that he's on. And this is important for us because I have to ask us the question, do we have the same posture to our society and to our culture and to the people in it? Do we love those people whose values are so radically different from our own? Do we love those people who maybe worship a different God? Do we love those people whose lifestyle isn't what we think it should be based on what God has revealed in his word? Or do we simply turn our backs or shout them down in condemnation? So one of the lessons that Daniel teaches us is that in order to have a redemptive influence, we need to learn to love the world the way God loves it. To not fall for the world, to not let the world influence us, but to, yes, love it. To look at the culture and say, what would God desire to redeem here? What is beautiful and worth saving? What is wrong that needs to be turned around? To look at those who, are the, who we encounter on a daily basis and to say, I truly desire the very best for you. And I want you to know the God of love whom I have come to know. That's the posture that the book of Daniel calls us to engage the world with. And it's an important lesson if we truly are going to bring redemptive influence in our culture and our society today. It's why Daniel pleads with his friend. But the story goes on and we quickly realize that even with this, this pleading call to change, even with a vision from heaven and a prophet who stands before him, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get the message. He's a little dense in that regard, right? 
Because then we read a little bit later on, he's walking on the roof of his palace and he looks out over the city and he says, Is not this the great Babylon, the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? And it's easy again to look at Nebuchadnezzar and just be like, Man, that dude is lost. I mean, talk about preaching to a brick wall, right? I mean, this guy had a vision from heaven. He had a prophet who was able to stand in front of him and tell him God's words. And a lot of us would look at that and say, man, if God spoke to me in dreams, and if he sent me a prophet who could interpret those dreams, I would listen. But I wonder. I wonder because if I'm honest and I look at my own life, there are times when God tries to give me very, very clear messages, and I just don't hear it. And those times most often come when things are going well. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is blinded by something. He's blinded by his success. And when things are going well, he doesn't realize just how desperately he needs God. And if I look at my own life, I realize that's my problem too. That the times when my devotional life drops off the face of the earth, the times when I don't pray, the times when I give least thought to God and to what he's doing in my life, are the times when everything is awesome. And it's because in those moments, I I tend to think that that I got this, that I'm okay, that I'm self-sufficient. And I think this is something that a lot of us wrestle with. This is a blindness that plagues every single one of us. How are things in your spiritual life when things are going well? You know, I talk to many of my friends from seminary, and we share stories. And one of the questions that we often ask each other is we say, what's the greatest challenge in your context to doing ministry? What's the greatest challenge? And the answer that I have given to many of my friends is I say, you know, the greatest challenge in my context is a question. And the question is, what good news do I give to people who have everything? You see, we live in in a county that's one of the wealthiest counties in the country. We are surrounded by mansions and Teslas, We have Apple watches and designer clothes. We have access to all these things that they're right at our fingertips. And in those moments, I think that our success can blind us to our need for God. And it becomes very, very hard to give good news to people who have the world at their fingertips. Because we think we're okay. In fact, one of the commentators that I read in preparing for this message said it this way. He said that when we stand in front of God, our problem is not just our weaknesses and failures, it's our successes and our strengths insofar as they lead us to take pride in ourselves. Our goodness itself can be an obstacle to receiving the message of the gospel because in our pride, we don't see our need for God. That's Nebuchadnezzar's problem, but it's your problem and it's my problem too. That our success, our wealth, our comfort, even our moral goodness can lead us to believe that we've got this, that we're okay, that we don't need God's help. And our spiritual life is strangled by the overabundance of all that we possess. And so the question is, what brings sight to those who are blinded by success? And the answer is, is only God. Only God can bring sight 
to those who are blinded by their own successes. And that's exactly what God does for Nebuchadnezzar. Because as we go on, we read that the moment Nebuchadnezzar speaks those words, that while those words were still on his lips, a voice from heaven comes and it says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He is driven away from the palace. He lives in the fields like an animal eating grass. His hair grows so long and becomes so matted it's like eagle's feathers. His, his, the nails of his hands and feet become like those of a wild bird. And many people, many modern people look at this story and they say, see, this is the kind of stuff that I hate about religion. This is the kind of stuff that I hate about the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because isn't this just how God does it, right? You know, we just get our heads up just enough, and then he cuts us down. He's just a big divine bully who has it in for the little guy. But that's actually not what this story tells us. Because if you look a little closer at the details, what you see is that God is actually giving Nebuchadnezzar a great gift. He gives him a great gift because what he's doing is he's showing Nebuchadnezzar who he really is apart from God. He takes away all those temporary things that Nebuchadnezzar took pride in. And he shows him who he really is. In fact, the language is pretty stark. It says, let his mind be changed from a man's and let a beast's mind be given to him. What, what that means is that he literally becomes an animal, right down to his affections and his desires and the ways that he thinks. He basically takes everything from Nebuchadnezzar, including his own sanity. But notice this. God takes it away, but he also gives it back. He doesn't wait for Nebuchadnezzar to praise him. It says at the end of the days... I lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason came, was returned to me. And then I praised God. See, God takes away, but he gives back. He restores Nebuchadnezzar to his position as once before, but he gives him a glimpse of what life is like apart from him. And that glimpse changes everything. Because the moment his sanity is restored, the first words that he speaks are words of praise and thanksgiving to God. But then it goes on and it says that at the same time that my reason was returned to me, so was everything else. For the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and my splendor returned to me as well. My counselors and my lords sought me out. I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. See, God restores Nebuchadnezzar to his throne, and he actually does it with far more abundance than he ever had before. But he's given Nebuchadnezzar a gift. He's given him the gift of a changed heart. That Nebuchadnezzar now sits as the mightiest man in the world, but he sits on that throne in humility and in gratitude. By giving him this glimpse, God is giving him a beautiful gift, and it's a gift that he desires to give to us as well. Because while we may cling to those things that we think give us our sense of significance, what God wants to show us is who we really are and who he is in response to us. I mean, think about this for just a moment. Think about some of these things that we take pride in. 
Things like our wealth and our jobs, maybe our academic successes, maybe even our freedom. If we pause and we think soberly about these things for a moment, we realize that money can be lost, jobs can be taken away, degrees can be ignored, and even your freedom can be stripped from you. And if we are seeking to establish our little kingdoms on those things, we are building our houses on sand. And what God wants to show us is that apart from him, we are nothing. But with him, we will be established in his kingdom. We will have a foundation upon which to sit. For his desire is to give us a new heart, a heart of humility and gentleness that recognizes that our worth and our significance is not in our successes. Our worth and our significance is a gift given to us by the God who loves us. That's the message, that's the gift that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. That was how he opened his eyes and helped him to see. And it's really quite shocking when you stop and you think about it. Because why, why does God even give Nebuchadnezzar a second chance at all? I mean, honestly, this guy is a tyrant. This is a man who has leveled civilizations. This is a man who has carried people off into slavery, who's burned people in fiery furnaces. This is a man whose ego, not his branches, reached to the heavens. And yet God gives him another chance. And we may initially look at that and we say, that that's ridiculous. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't deserve it, but that's the point. That's the good news. Because no, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't deserve it, but God gives it. And if he gives it to Nebuchadnezzar, it means he gives it to everybody. That our God is a God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and fifth chances. And the reason that our God can give us those chances is because it all goes back to a tree. But it's not a tree erected by some prideful pagan king. Rather, it was a tree of a humble king. It was not a tree outside of Babylon, but it was a tree outside of Jerusalem. A tree on which a king was willing to go and to be nailed for the people that he loved. A tree upon which that king was willing to shed his own blood so that others might have life. A tree whose shade in which we can take refuge, from which we can find all good and all sustenance, all hope from now until eternity. It's the tree of the cross of Jesus Christ. Scripture puts it this way. I love this verse from 1 Peter. It says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and by his wounds we have been healed. Nebuchadnezzar was cast out and returned to his throne. Jesus was cast out and put in a tomb. But he did it for us. He did it because he loved us. He did it so that we might be forgiven for all the ways in which we've given in to pride. For all the tyrannical ways in which we've treated other people in our lives. But ultimately, he rises again to new life to say, those who take refuge in this tree have hope from now until eternity. And that is a message that is indeed good news for all the Nebuchadnezzars of this world, but it's also good news for you and for me. This is a story that can change 
our world. It's a story that we don't just know about. It's a story that we're a part of. And we get the privilege and the honor of, like Daniel, being able to go out into the world and tell them that there's hope. Because this world tells people that if you really want to have hope and you really want to be established, that it's all on you. That you have to succeed. You have to get ahead. If you want to have an eternity and a future, you need to save yourself. You need to work hard and improve, and then maybe you'll have enough security, enough hope, and enough uh, good merit in order to have a future. And yet what the story of Daniel, the story of Scripture, the story of Jesus tells us is that that is a gift that's already given to you. Your Your success is not your significance. Your significance and your identity are gifts that are given to you by the God in whose image you are made. The God who is willing to shed his own blood to save you. The God who rises again to give you the gift of life eternal. That is a story that our world desperately needs to hear. That's a God that they desperately need to know. That's a hope that truly is from everlasting to everlasting. For it's God's kingdom and dominion that is from generation to generation. It's his kingdom which has no end. And it's a kingdom that we are joyfully welcomed into by Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose again. And it's my hope that we won't be shy about that. But that we'll take that message into the world with humility, gentleness, love, but also with courageous truth. Pointing others to the only place where hope is truly found. And it's with that that I want to close both this message and this series in prayer. Will you please bow your heads and pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks that it was you and your death on a tree that gives us life. That you willingly bore the punishment for all of our prideful arrogance in order to give us sight to help us to see that our significance and our hope are not in what we do, but in what you've already done. Lord, I pray, I pray that that message would go deep into hearts and give us roots and a foundation and a hope that we would be established knowing that we are a part of your kingdom. But then we would take that message out into the world and show them that there is a different way to live. A life knowing that our value and our dignity are gifts given by the God who made us in his image, who redeems us with his blood, and who raises us again to new life through his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for spending some time in God's Word with us during this message. It was recorded live in worship at Trinity Church in Lyle, Illinois, where God is leading us on our mission to look, live, and love more like Jesus. Would you like to know more about our relationship with Christ, or more about Trinity, who we are, what we believe, and where and when you might join us in worship or a growth group? Please visit our website at tlc4u.org. That's the letters T L C the number four, and the letter U, dot org. May God bless you and yours abundantly through Jesus Christ. Thanks again for listening.